Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sarah Week Conversation presented to you by IHS Market. My name is Atul Arya. I am Chief Energy Strategist at IHS Market. And it's my immense pleasure today to welcome Jigar Shah, who is the Director of the Loan Programs Office at the US Department of Energy. Jigar, welcome to Sarah Week Conversations. Thanks for having me, Atul. Yeah, and I, should, I guess we should say in full transparency to our audience that Jigar and I uh, know each other for a long time. We were colleagues back in the early days of solar PV. So uh, I'm really looking forward to, to this, uh, this conversation. So very belated congratulations to you on your appointment, which of course was announced by, by Secretary Granholm at Sarah Week uh, <laughs> in, you know, in, in March, which was a, which was a big, a big thing. So let's start with the kind of the real basics, Jigar. So tell us uh, about the Loan Programs Office. What is it? G give an introduction to our audience. Yeah, it's a great question because it's one that I've uh, been trying to figure out all the different nuanced differences, right? And fundamentally, I think that we all recognize that project finance is something that is not well understood, right? People understand corporate equity, stock market, corporate debt, you know, but project finance is something that's not well understood. And, and ultimately what you find is the commercial debt market generally does not want to do new things for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's because they genuinely believe there's technology risk mm -hmm. uh, that they don't understand. But a lot of times it's just because they can hit their numbers without doing new stuff. And so what ends up happening is that there's a lot of technologies that we all care about at the Department of Energy and also as a nation that don't get a good start. So when you think about carbon sequestration and storage today or green hydrogen or other technologies that frankly are 20 plus years old, right? Most of these concepts are not new. They're new to the news media, but not new to the technology world, um, but they can't really get commercial debt. And so we have about $46 billion of existing authority within clean energy, uh, uh, and uh, the automotive supply chain uh, to be able to provide these loans and to really be a bridge for the commercial debt market so that they see us do the first three or four deals, then they get comfortable uh, doing the next set of deals. Yeah. So uh, I'm starting to hear this phrase that the loan programs office is open for business. So <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, I think you can imagine that um, that the loan programs office went through a tremendous amount of scrutiny uh, mm -hmm. early on, and uh, it caused a lot of um, a lot of um, very conservative, uh, you know, sort of action after that. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that when Secretary Granholm came in, and of course the president, um, they said, "Hey, there's this forty-six billion dollars of authority there. Why are we not using it?" Uh, and you know, they said, "Look, you know, mistakes may have been made in the past, but we fixed them." Uh, the office is uh, well run. It has a fantastic risk group. Um, and the portfolio now is $32 billion. And when you look at the performance of the portfolio, it's now investment grade. Um, and uh, the losses have been one sixth of the amount of money that we projected. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about the performance of the program, when we're really supposed to be doing technologies that are misunderstood by the market. Uh, and and the performance has been quite strong. And so the secretary and the president really said, look, go for it, let's get this done. And, uh, and so it's worked. I mean, we had very few applications that came in last year. 
Today, we're already averaging about $7 billion of applications a month, and uh, more are coming every day. We've got about 40 uh, applications that we know about that are being actively put together. Um, everything from you know the fossil uh, sector to advanced nuclear to renewable energy, energy efficiency to EV manufacturing, battery manufacturing, and even critical minerals. So pretty diverse. So let's talk about uh, that portfolio a little bit. So what's currently uh, in the portfolio? Well, the current stuff that's in the portfolio is are things that we approved in 2009, 2010. Right? Previous, so previous years, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is uh, utility scale solar and wind, which many people forget that those were unbankable projects, right? They received power purchase agreements in 2007, 2008. Um, by 2010, they still had not gotten bank debt. Uh, the Department of Energy provided the bank debt. And even after we provided a guarantee, uh, you know, most of those projects were forced to be sold to Berkshire Hathaway, who we know generally makes good rates of return on their investment. Um, <laughs> Pretty good, yeah. It was not a competitive process. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I would say 2014 that the Wall Street banks really got fully comfortable with solar and wind financing at scale. And today, of course, the, the cost of capital has never been lower. Yeah. Um, but the same thing is true. We did three geothermal projects. We did, um, of course, electric vehicles, right, with Tesla and Fisker. Uh, we did battery manufacturing with Nissan. We did um, uh, a nuclear plant. Obviously, the Bodil nuclear plant continues to, you know, uh, be almost close to being turned on. Um, and uh, and so yeah, the 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 existing portfolio is about thirty two billion. Uh, we did a transmission line in there as well using new technology. And so it's it's a pretty diverse tech group, and I think what you'll see is that almost you know in almost every sector a trillion dollars of equity value has been created since we made those loans in 2010 2011. Um, and so now we have to find the next set of technologies to do the same thing. So so I want to come back to the next uh, the what's coming in, in into yeah. the future. But before we do that, you kind of just in the passing mentioned Tesla, but uh, I think for our audience important to know that the loan programs office was a pretty important early funder into, into the Tesla. Uh, yeah, I think Elon right? and Jamie Straubel will, will say, right? I mean, if you talk to them directly, I actually just had a good conversation uh, with Jamie the other day that, um, that, yeah, I mean, they were out of cash, right? And nobody wanted to fund them because you had the financial crisis and uh, the you know loan programs office put in $465 million for them to retool an existing auto manufacturing plant uh, into their plant. And then, and then that, that uh, allowed them to launch the Model S, which allowed them to raise more money and do the Gigafactory. And you know, all of those things came from that. And, and I think we're proud of the fact that they were able to pay us off early, right? So they didn't have to go the full 10 years for the loan. They were able to pay us off in 2013, I believe. Um, and yeah, so it was, a, it was a fantastic success story. But even more importantly was that we made the loan to Fisker as well, which we lost money on. And I think part of what the secretary talks about and you know, I reinforce is that we have to take several swings at bat. And the question becomes if we fund four EV manufacturers and one of them becomes Tesla and the other three either you know, go out of business or are not as financially successful, you know, I think that still promotes the interests of the United States of America. Um, and making sure that all that innovation that we've paid for at the Department of Energy stays yeah. here and grows here and creates jobs here. So, so let's talk about the combination of future technology 
in the con context of what they are and what kind of technology risks there could be. So uh, maybe I can talk about, ask you about two in particular, and then we can broaden it. Sure. You, you already mentioned carbon capture, and the other one I'm interested in is, is, is geothermal. So tell us a little bit about both of those. What's, what's the thinking on those two? Yeah, I think that um, it's very clear that we have been testing carbon sequestration and storage techniques since, well, for decades, right? But I mean, certainly as the United States government, we've been talking about it and funding it uh, at high levels since 2009, right? When you think about the class six wells that were installed for ADM in Illinois. And so when you think about our understanding of the technology, it's quite strong now. Like we know what a good class six well looks like, which you know captures CO2 and, and doesn't you know, leak. Uh, we know what a good CO2 pipeline looks like. We know which areas of the industrial sector can handle a $50, 45Q credit and which ones that's just too low a number for. Uh, we know, you know what good business models look like, right? So whether it's ethanol plants or EOR or other types of structures, right? So now the question becomes, what does scale up look like, right? Because I think that there's just a lot of confusion around R&D and technology and the value of that, and then demonstration and the value of that, which is of course very important. But then what does it take to really create $100 billion deployments, right? So when you think about the state of Louisiana, where they have you know 60% of their emissions are from the industrial sector, right? And, 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 and they have a huge industrial capacity. Um, for them to meet the governor's goals, they have to really figure out carbon sequestration and storage. And then uh, when you look at the, the geology of Louisiana, they can actually store uh, you know, tremendous amounts of CO2. And when you think about 200 million tons of CO2, which is you know, roughly what they think that they can actually capture, uh, they, uh, that's $10 billion of revenue a year from the 45Q program, right? If you bury it in the ground. And it's about $100 billion of investment to be able to get it done. And so the question really becomes, what does it look like, right? Is it each individual company coming to the loan programs office for an application? Sure, you know, we've got $12 billion plus of applications that have come in under the fossil title, most of which are carbon sequestration and storage and we're evaluating them all now. Mm -hmm. But it could also be a new utility company. Right? The state of Louisiana could say, hey, we're going to create one common uh, trunk line for CO2 and you know, one common set of class six wells, and, and we're going to allow people to opt in right, to, the, to the network and share the risk and costs across all of them. Right? So there isn't discrete risk on one uh, project. And so I think when you think about all of the complexity of these issues, uh, the loan programs office is staffed not only to evaluate senior debt for a loan, but also to think through all of these issues with governors and the industry participants. In, in that example you're giving, Jigar, if a consortium of companies came and said, you know, we are going to do this project, whether it's in Louisiana and, you know, we have another potential uh, proposal out in, in Texas now in, in Houston, yeah. on the big, you know, mega CCS uh, kind of cluster. So all those are open, you know, you, you know loan, they could come to you and say, here is the project. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, ultimately, the way that loan programs office thinks is the same way that S&P and Moody's thinks, right? It's the same way that the commercial debt market thinks, right? So we're not a subsidy. We are, you know, cer certainly we have more competitive costs of capital, but ultimately we're a liquidity instrument, right? The goal for us is to fund a project, 
but more importantly, fund it in a way where we think we can just pass all of our notes onto Wall Street so that they can do the next set, right? I mean, I have 46 billion of authority here at the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office. So we can do whatever portion of that we can do and the Congress may give us additional resources. But at some point, right, we've done our job. We're a catalyst and we can hand it off to Wall Street to do the next 100 billion, yeah. right? We and are kind so of being a bridge in the sense that, as you said, you know, going back to the solar PV days, which you know well, you yeah. know, there wasn't money available, but this money kind of acts as a bridge then. Is That's that right. We don't want to compete with the commercial debt markets, right? We What we acknowledge is that every one of these solutions has to get to trillion dollar scale, right? That's the only way you meet the carbon targets that we've set for ourselves for 2035 and then for electricity and then 2050 for the whole economy. And we're never going to have a trillion dollars, right? That's not how the loan <laughs> programs office works. Yeah. So that means that we have to bridge to private sector capital. Otherwise, you know, the goal uh, doesn't get reached. So, so uh, can we talk about geothermal? You know, there is a lot yeah. of excitement uh, around geothermal and particularly both in the oil and gas sector more, more broadly as well. Uh, you are looking at geothermal uh, projects as well? You're already funding? We are. I mean, geothermal has a few issues, right? One is that it's very obvious that geothermal technology works, right? It, it's a staple of many economies around the world, including California and the United States. Yeah. But I think that when you think about um, the challenges with geothermal, there are real risks around drilling, right? It happens where people drill a well incorrectly, and then they have to drill another one. And those are expensive, right? So the question is like for the risk management divisions at Halliburton and Schlumberger and other places, can they actually reduce the risk on drilling, right? Can they reduce the cost on a per well basis? And frankly, the vast majority of um, innovations that we've seen in the geothermal space have come from the oil and gas sector, whether it's horizontal drilling or whether it's fracking or whether it's other types of innovations, a lot of them have been transferred from you know, the oil and gas sector to the geothermal sector. So the oil and gas industry is already amazing at it, but the commercial contracts are not there. So when you think about if you're a geothermal developer and you say, hey, I'd like to hire an EPC contractor to do the work, um, the level of protection around warranties on people's work or, or, um, or how the uh, wells are even evaluated. Most of the wells that we see have a plus or minus 25% range on them, right? And so when you think about how geothermal gets to trillion dollar scale, right? I mean, you know, I think there's lots of reports that show that there's 60 gigawatts of geothermal capacity that we've identified in the US. And, you know, when you look at a decarbonized grid, we need flexible baseload to yeah. be able to meet the grid. So that's geothermal, low impact hydro, nuclear. Um, each one of these technologies has these institutional barriers where everything needs micromanagement when it comes to due diligence. Every single project is a snowflake and each project uh, takes extraordinary amount of time, you know, years worth of due diligence before people feel comfortable to put the money in. Um, and then the other factor you have on top of that is today in the Salton Sea for the geothermal projects there, there's a huge gold mine there around uh, critical minerals. Right, a lot of the brine there actually has lithium and exactly. other important uh, elements in there. Right, so now the geothermal projects can be hugely profitable. But I would say that the supply chain of capital, when it comes to development of these projects, right, and all of the development, high risk development dollars, to the 
uh, risk management of the, the construction mm -hmm. to the operations mirrors the oil and gas sector, right? It's a long-term process. It's like a six-year process and all these other things. But what we found is, is that the oil and gas sector has not yet figured out how they want to play in the space at scale. So there's a lot of pilot projects here and there. And so, you know, loan programs office continues to be open for business. We see a lot of projects coming in. The 1000 megawatt RFP uh, in California is essential because as we know, geothermal is probably seven cents a kilowatt hour. So it doesn't usually win lowest price, uh, all requirements contracts. Um, so that level of uh, focus is super important. Um, so we're going to be doing, you know, several billion dollars worth of geothermal loan guarantees. But I would say that the bridge to bankability is more than just these projects. It's also figuring out how we rationalize the supply chain around development dollars and EPC risks. Yeah. So, so I do want to come to supply chain, but just last question because you mentioned the oil and gas sector. I mean, what should be your message to oil and gas, not just for geothermal, but carbon capture and other technologies? You know, many many of our audience come from the oil and gas sector. Yeah, I think when you read the technology pathways work from the International Energy Agency or within the Department of Energy, what it shows is that there are certain sectors that are on track to reaching uh, gigaton scale, right? So whether it's solar or wind or, uh, or lithium ion battery storage or other things, right? And then there are many pathways that are not on track to gigaton scale, right? So these are geothermal or low impact hydro or uh, nuclear, like small modular and advanced nuclear. And so what I would suggest to the gas industry is I've, I've been quite surprised at how they have been chasing, um, you know, things that are already successful, whether like solar and wind, yeah. as opposed to leveraging the tens of thousands of extraordinary people who work at their companies and bringing forward their expertise in subsurface, you know, uh, you know, geology, uh, you know, risk management, safety. Uh, there are many sectors where these skills are critical and these skills are generally not available in the existing, you know, uh, players in that space, right? And so I'd love to see them differentiate themselves and, you know, as Warren Buffett talks about, create moats around their business, um, which then will, you know, I think lead to increased interest uh, in their companies from investors. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of skills, as you mentioned, you know, I would add to that. Uh, project management, you know, doing large, you know, like a carbon capture is a large scale yeah. project management, which they are very good at doing, you know, right. Yeah. So, so let's talk about supply chains. And I do also want to uh, come back to uh, automotive because a part of your portfolio includes advanced automotive. So could you just talk about what that looks like? And then we'll come to the supply chain question. Well, I mean, this is another area where the oil and gas industry has had expertise for a long time, right? We've had very problematic supply chains in the oil and gas sector for years, right? Countries that we don't necessarily love the leadership in where uh, we do uh, get the molecules from. And I think that we're starting to face this in many other sectors, whether it's solar panels or critical minerals or uh, in um, you know, uh, advanced materials and things like that. And so I think what the president has talked about is, um, is that look, if we're gonna make the shift, if we're gonna decarbonize the country, we should make sure that the employment happens here in the United States, right? We shouldn't be just feeding uh, the global economy. Now, you know, we will always be importing 
stuff, right? I mean, the global economy does have some uh, efficiency. But, you know, today, when you look at the sheer amount of one-sidedness, right, where we have 10% of the global battery manufacturing capacity, uh, you know, and China has 74%, right? The U.S. can do better and should do better, right? We should build more gigafactories here. And we have technology improvements that dramatically improve uh, energy density as well as lifetime, as well as other things, right? So instead of allowing those companies to go overseas to build their first plants, we should be encouraging them to do that here. And so I think there's a number of programs that we have existing, but also new programs that are going through the American Jobs Plan, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure uh, bill to be able to incentivize them to stay here. And so I think that there is an increased focus on studying all of these problems, figuring out where the deltas lie. There might be some places where you know, other countries can make things 50% cheaper than we can. Mm -hmm. And there are some places where, you know, it's only a 10% difference. And in that case, it does feel like there are ways for us to bridge that gap. Do you see, I mean, one of the things I wonder is, will the pace of transition and the deployment of clean technologies, will it slow down in this period where we're trying to kind of sort out the supply chains, you know, bring, add more manufacturing say in, in outside of uh, Asia, what is your sense? Well, remember that we, that the, the pace at which we are deploying climate solutions mm -hmm. is wholly unacceptable, right? I mean, you know, I think the United States is at maybe $200 billion a year of climate change solution deployment annually. Mm -hmm. And that number has to probably be a trillion dollars a year to be yeah. able to be on track mm -hmm. to uh, the goals that, you know, the president will be announcing in Glasgow. So I think that when you think about um, uh, the transition, right, we can maintain $200 billion a year uh, or even grow that number substantially and still pursue supply chain efficiency because we eventually have to get to a trillion dollars a year of deployment or else we're not going to get to the goal, right? So, so you know, we're not deploying at a fast enough pace uh, where a, any slowdown is necessary. Um, because there's, you know, there, there's just such a, we're just in such a deficit in terms of deployment. And even when you think about how big the deployment of clean energy is today on the electricity side, right? I mean, we're probably at close to 85% of all new capacity being deployed being uh, sure. non-fossil, yeah. right? Annually, uh, net of retirements, right? Of uh, retirements. And so, so when you think about that, I mean, it's pretty impressive, right? We're almost at 100%. And, uh, and even then we're half to one third of where we need to be to be able to reach the full decarbonization by 2035. So there's plenty of uh, scope here, right? That's, that's yeah. what I'm saying. You know, one other question I have around financing is that I always hear you know, this sort of argument back and forth. We don't have enough good projects or we don't have enough money. Uh, what, do you, what do you think of that? How do you, how do you address that? So we solved that problem once and for all, I'd say three years ago. So today we are perennially have too much money and not enough projects, right? So today, um, if you look at the energy sector alone, I'd say that like five years ago, fundraising was probably 50-50 between oil and gas and, and clean energy. Oh, yeah. Today yeah. it's like 10% oil and gas, 90% clean energy, right? So we have, and then when you look at a macro basis, when I started Sun Edison in 2003, we were at about 3% of global money raised of all types, right? In, in the private funds, 
was in infrastructure. Today, that number is 12% of all funds raised globally is going to infrastructure. So when you think about just the sheer amount of money that's been raised, it's enormous, right? We don't have enough projects. And the reason we don't have enough projects is because the only people who really know how to develop projects are people who uh, develop sort of solar, wind, and those kinds of projects, right? When you look at the oil and gas space, those are almost always PPPs, right? They're not really projects. They're like, you know, someone gets, wins an auction, they get, you know, a monopoly license to, you know, to figure out this particular site. And then they, you know, build out their, their capabilities if there's oil and gas there, right? And, and that's not the same thing as climate solutions. When you think about climate solutions, whether it's nuclear plants or, or uh, carbon sequestration storage or other things, these are projects, right? And I would say the vast majority of people are still waiting for the government to tell them what a risk-free approach looks like. And that's not how it works. It's not risk-free. You, you spend a lot of development dollars to develop the projects. And so a lot of what we're doing at the Loan Programs Office is really explaining to people the supply chain of how it works within the government, but then also within industry. There are many industry participants who really don't understand this, right? I mean, um, you know, the vast majority of the oil and gas sector, for instance, has been funded with corporate equity and corporate debt, right? Junk bonds were, you know, like a big thing. And um, when you ask them, like, well, here's how you make money in project finance, it's foreign. They're like, we don't actually understand project finance. We don't do project finance in the oil and gas sector. We, we either raise corporate equity or raise corporate debt. Like, I don't understand what you're talking about. And so like, if I were to say to somebody, I can make 20% return on equity on a 6% return project, they have no idea what I just said. They have no idea, right? But I can show you many companies in the clean energy space that are generating projects at three and a half to 5% returns right now, all in unlevered returns that are making 20% return for shareholders, right? But that whole concept needs to be fully understood across the entire supply chain of all of the decarbonization elements. Otherwise, people are just gonna keep waiting for the government to fund it all. And you know, as we know, that's never gonna happen. happen. I think the other thing which I would say is that, uh, and you can comment on this, is that you know, oil and gas business in particular, there have been very, you know, it's not a lot of projects in the sense of what we think about in clean energy, isn't it? You build it, you know, you develop a field and that may take like five years and then it comes online, you know, so it's, it's a long process. Whereas now we're talking about like a real pipeline of projects, right? It's, it needs to be multiple projects, in different sectors every year. So it's different skills. Yeah, yeah I would, like for instance, in the, in the carbon sequestration space, right? Mm. The average coal or natural gas plant has, you know, only 25% or 30% of the exhaust is actually CO2. The rest of it is lots of other things like water vapor and things like that. And so when you think about the, con the concentrating steps that have to be taken, it's much easier to work with ammonia plants and ethanol plants where they have a constant stream of CO2 that's 90% plus concentrated, right? Those are all individual projects, right? Each project, you have, to, you have to collect the CO2, you have to create a CO2 pipeline, you have to create a backbone, put it in, put it in through a class six well. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to get, uh, you know, a billion dollar deal in one, in one contract. It's one a bunch goal, of 50 yeah. million dollar deals. Yeah. So, so uh, just uh, pivoting a little bit to uh, back to to the loan programs office, uh, you know, we hear the phrase 
you know, the uh, whole of the government approach to solving climate change, uh, how does that apply to loan programs office? That's a great question. So like, for instance, I think a lot of what we've heard about in the last two years have been, you know, extreme weather, which has created uh, issues on the electricity grid in Texas or in California or New York mm -hmm. or other places. And now people are using demand flexibility, for instance, as a way to um, uh, deal with some of those things, right? Getting people to turn up the thermostats or turn down the thermostats, depending on the, the temperature issue. Um, and you know, a lot of that can be done through connected devices, right? So this is demand flexibility, demand energy resources, DER aggregators. This is FERC energy, FERC order 2222. And so when you think about what that requires in terms of whole of government, Energy Star has to mark which appliances are connected, right? Um, then you have to have protocols around how the, um, the DER aggregators can uh, work on uh, issues, right, with the regional transmission operators, right? So FERC has a big role to play there, right? When you think about um, the weatherization dollars and the low-income housing energy assistance payment programs that the Department of Energy has for low-income households, right? Prioritizing connected devices is a big uh, issue, right? When you think about the loan programs office, like we've never done anything that was consumer related, but now we're developing uh, products that, to support virtual power plants because many, 87% of appliances are purchased when you have an emergency, right? You don't proactively replace your refrigerator, you wait till it dies and then you replace it, right? For people who have money, they can just call up Sears and you know, like put in their credit card and get it done. For many people, um, you know, they're being offered on the spot financing, which is 30% interest, right? Yeah. Um, and so we can intervene there and make sure that they're getting a connected device, which is future-proof, but also um, can participate in this greater, uh, support. So when you think about whole of government, there's a regulatory component, there's a policy component, there's a mandate component, right? Um, there's all of these pieces. And then there's an education component. Like many of the public service commissions across the country still don't understand that virtual power plants and demand flexibility is 98% cheaper than upgrading distribution lines, right? Um, and so when you think about all that education, the Department of Energy has funded experts to sit in uh, many of the Public Service Commission uh, offices so they have somebody who's an expert that can answer these questions for them. Yeah, so like a, a systems thinking to, to the world of energy, which, which is yeah. great. Uh, last question on this. Uh, your, of course, big focus are also around uh, just transition. And one component of your portfolio is around tribal uh, energy projects. So could you say something about that, Jigar? Yeah, I think there's um, a couple of things uh, at work, right? One is that, you know, clearly we have tribes who have not uh, been given full access to modern uh, uh, services, right? So there are places where you don't have uh, uh, clean drinking water, you don't have uh, access to electricity, you don't have access to some of these things. And so that is something that is working through the Congress today. And Largely, I would say a lot of that work is grant funded, right? Um, separately, I think that there's many wealth opportunities, right? So many of the best wind and solar sites in the country are on tribal lands. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many transmission corridors which run through tribal uh, lands, right? And, and making sure that the tribes not only get paid rent for those sites, but also actually participate in ownership of those assets is something that we're very focused on. And that is 
where we're really focused on the tribal energy loan guarantee program. So we have $2 billion of authority. The tribes have to own at least 51% of the project. And then we can provide up to a 90% uh, loan guarantee on the debt. And so when you think about what's happening there, there are many projects where, um, where the private sector has, has figured out that uh, if they invite a tribe in as their partner, to be a 51% owner, then they can get access to this much lower cost debt and it supports everyone, right? So things like coal fly ash uh, cleanup technologies, like we've had the ability to clean up coal fly ash and then put the resultant uh, product into green cement, for instance. Um, and there are a lot of these types of projects that are just not moving forward because the commercial bank market doesn't want to participate, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of job opportunities for tribal members. You have investment opportunities there. And so there's many parts of the decarbonization story um, where the tribes actually have uh, an advantage. And so there's a lot of education work going on there. And so we um, have never issued a loan out of the Tribal Energy Loan Guarantee Program, but um, the new people that we've hired there have tremendous experience in working with the tribes. And so I think we have three applications that are coming in in the next few months, and then we have more coming in uh, after that. So we're excited about the progress there. Very good. So a very active portfolio, a lot of interesting things happening. My last question to you, Jigar, is that of course, you know, you come with a very long history of business background, being an entrepreneur. So how is all that prepared you for, for this job? What are you bringing to the table? This is not an interview question because you already have the job. <laughs> well, as you know, I mean, you and I uh, met uh, when we were both working for BP and um, in the solar business That's in right. the solar business. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, a lot of what I was doing as a young person and mentored by you was figuring out how BP worked, right? Like what, what are the bureaucracies? Like what are the politics? Who are the players? What do they like to do? What do they not like to do? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and remember financing was just coming up with the German feed and tariff program at the time and other things. And you know there were a lot of questions out of BP Treasury and BP like CFO's office, et cetera. Like, how does this work? Like, what liabilities are we taking? Are we selling something? Is it Sarbanes Oxley compliant? Right, all those things. And I would say the government's exactly the same, right? It's just a set of rules. And a lot of what I've done is the risk management part of the loans is something that I know and I'm doing well. And I think you know the team is really good. But figuring out, you know, what is the Office of Management and Budget solving for? What is the Secretary of Energy solving for? What is the Department of Treasury solving for? Like, what, what are members of Congress solving for, right? I mean, I, to, to me, I think that process is the same as it's been for my entire career, which is, I mean, even when I was running Sun Edison, right, what is Goldman Sachs solving for when we raised the first $60 million fund from them, right? Like, where does this fit within Hank Paulson's vision at the time, right, when he was running Goldman? And, you know, it's a big mapping exercise and it's not judgmental, right? I think that in general, people judge situations. Oh, it could be better. I wish it was this way or that way. For me, you know, it's more about what is, what is the process? Let's map it out and then let's meet the needs of everybody that we can. And if there are certain needs we cannot meet, then let's point out the area where the policy is being thwarted by the process. And then the, the political people can choose, right? They can say, I want the policy or no, the process is more important. We're gonna like ditch the policy, right? And so, um, so I think that process has been great. And the secretary, frankly, is just such a huge supporter of our program that it makes uh, optimizing all these things better. 
And it has allowed us to be very uh, open with applicants, right? So, I mean, you know me, like, I mean, I, I've been on the other side of these things. And so a lot of what I do is to go to the potential applicants and say, look, this is going to be the easy part. And here are the five areas that are going to be the hard part. So let's not start the process unless you're prepared to go through the, the hard part. And I think that's been welcome. I think people welcome the transparency. And, yeah. you know, there's certain things I can streamline and fix and certain things that I'm not able to. Well, you know, Jigar, thank you uh, for joining us for this uh, Sarah Week uh, conversation. Good luck to you uh, as you progress and come back um, next year in March when we do the actual Sarah Week, uh, hopefully in Houston, to tell us uh, how you're doing, uh, how much, uh, you know, how many new loans you have given. I can't think of anybody more, well, you know, better suited than you are to run this very important program uh, for the D Department of Energy. So thank you again and thank you everybody for joining us for this Sarah Week conversation. Thank you, Atul.